You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, out of the Sacramento office of Lozano Smith, one of the firm's co-leaders in litigation. I'm lucky to be joined again. I think you might be in the lead, Ms. Cannon, as one of the most prolific podcast participants in the firm. But Michelle Cannon, one of our labor and employment uh, co-practice group leaders, an expert, though, in, in many issues far beyond just the labor and employment context, but but perfect for today's topic. I didn't know I loved podcasts so much, but you apparently do. I do. You do. You love listening to them. You love recording them. You like watching videos of them. You like That's earbudding true. them. Yeah. That part's true. Also a huge podcast fan and a first-timer on the podcast circuit, Kendra Toby, also out of our Sacramento office, senior counsel and, and an attorney with practice areas in special education and student and charter and labor and employment as well, one of our authors of the client news brief on the subject matter of today's podcast, the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District United States Supreme Court case that maybe redid the map on a lot of issues when we look at employee speech, especially that of a religious denomination. Um, Opinion came out in June. We've been doing a ton of work on it everywhere for every district and trainings and other other things. Um, Plenty of fodder out there in the in the stratosphere as to what it means, what it does. Um, I think now is a great time for a podcast, though, as we head into the fall, because we've had a chance to really kind of sit back get a full big view of the case and here we are together so Kendra Michelle thank you for joining today thank you for having us thank you excited to be here Kendra can you start with let's let's do the 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 groundwork for the facts that that led to this case sure so this case involves a football coach up in Washington State out of the Bremerton School District he was a coach there Uh, For about seven years during that time, he was um, engaging in various types of religious activities with students and community members. Namely, he was praying on the 50-yard line. Uh, His belief was that he was out there to give thanks for the opportunities that presented themselves um, in the game of football. And for those seven years, he prayed alone. Over time, uh, community members and players started to join him. He was leading prayers in the locker room and giving overtly religious speeches to players uh, during pre and post game meetings. And these activities were not complained about for those seven years. Um, But in September of 2015, a coach from an opposing team actually praised those activities and brought it to the attention of uh, the Bremerton principal. And at that point, uh, they started taking action on those religious activities. And so in response to that comment from an opposing um, team in the community, they the district wrote Kennedy a letter, and they asked him to limit those speeches to non-religious topics and to engage only in private, non-demonstrative prayer, so no more praying on the 50-yard line. Um, he complied with most of those directives. He ceased those uh, speeches with students, no more overtly religious speeches in the locker room or pre- or post-game activities. But he wrote the district back and told them that he still felt called to pray on the 50-yard line and that it was a sincerely held religious belief. So 
In October, there were three games that are really at issue in this case. Before the first game in October, the district sent Kennedy a letter, and they acknowledged that he had complied with all of their directives except for the prayer. Um, And they forbade him in that letter from engaging in that overt prayer or any other religious actions. He continued to pray on the 50-yard line after that game. Before the second game in October, the district sent him another letter, again expressing the appreciation that they had for his efforts to comply with those directives, and again uh, told him that he could not pray on the 50-yard line and that they would allow him to pray in a private location after the game behind closed doors. He continued to pray on the 50-yard line. By that third game in October, Kennedy prayed on the 50-yard line, uh, and it was characterized by the district as a brief quiet prayer. And after that game ended, the district decided to place Kennedy on administrative leave. And when they placed him on administrative leave, they stated that it was due to his engagement in public demonstrative religious conduct while still on duty as a coach. Um, And they based this on the Lemon v. v. Kurtzman case. And they stated that it was because reasonable students and attendees might perceive the district as endorsing religion. And so they believed that they were telling him he could not pray on the 50-yard line because if he did, the district was in violation of the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause. Um, In that letter, the district had specifically acknowledged that um, Kennedy had discontinued the prior practices, and so he was uh, being placed on administrative leave for those three October games. After the end of the season, Kennedy was not rehired, and at that point, he filed a lawsuit against the district, alleging that the district had violated his First Amendment rights, both for free speech, for the expression that comes along with prayer, and also the free exercise clause for his participation in a sincerely held religious activity. I think what's really interesting before we move on from the facts is what Bremerton, the position they were taking and the notices they were sending him, I mean, that was based on advice that school districts all across the country and school attorneys all across the country consistently gave. It was not like they were out on their own or doing something unusual. I mean, it was based on really well-established law and and expectations at the time. And you would say probably the same thing, Michelle, for offering accommodations to him from a religious perspective, trying to make sure that channel for him to express himself was still there while watching their their own toes when it comes to establishment. Exactly, because in an employment law context, let's just take the establishment clause out of it, you want to you, you have a duty to um, accom- reasonably accommodate employees' religious practices for sincerely held religious beliefs. But that's what they had attempted to do here by saying, oh, we don't want you praying on the 50-yard line after a game, but we'll give you a private, quiet location to do it somewhere you know else. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't acceptable to him. So, Michelle, I'm going to take us on a real fast forward through the litigation context, and I want to turn it back to you once we got to the Supreme Court. So we file suit, right? District court says, hey, school district, you're right. That would have been an establishment cause violation. And he seeks, tries to seek an injunction, and they deny that injunction. Goes to the Ninth Circuit, Ninth Circuit, district court, district, you are right. That would have been, you're likely to prevail, school district, that that's an establishment cause problem. He seeks review to the Supreme Court. A majority of the court refuses to take the case up on review, but several dissent from that, suggesting that they had a very keen interest in, in this issue. case. Yeah. Yep. Goes back down to the district court, ruling on the merits in the district's favor. Ninth Circuit on appeal on the merits in the district's favor. 
and on bonk re-hearing re, re of the case on the merits in the district's favor up to the Supreme Court. And there we are, Michelle. And why don't you start with the particular facts that the Supreme Court was focusing upon in issuing its decision. Okay. And it's interesting that by the time it went back to the Supreme Court for its decision on the merits, it was a different court than had considered it, right. whatever it was, two or three years before that as well. So the Supreme Court, I mean, there was, it's a 70 page, super dense decision. So we're going to be dissecting this for years to come probably. But the Supreme Court, I think, was really careful to focus on extremely limited facts to reach its decision. And so as Kendra pointed out, those three games, that's what the Supreme Court focused its decision on, on what the coach wanted to do and did do at those three games and the, and the district's reaction to it. So it focused um, completely on the fact that the coach gave a speech in a quiet, um, let me see the word, the phrase they used. I think they said a personal and private expression of you know his religious beliefs or his prayer. So that was really important to them that it was personal and private. It was not him preaching out loud or on a microphone saying any sort of prayer or anything like that. So it was personal and private. They focused on that. District it, students involved? It did not involve any students. So they focused on that. It didn't involve other employees either. And I think one of the most important parts of their decision and the fact they focused on was that he did this after the game when his coaching duties were essentially over. And and what they were point, uh, pointed out more than once was other employees after the game were also free to make a phone call, send an email, talk to a friend, whatever. So they had the right to do the things they wanted to do immediately after the game ended. And that was important to them in finding this coach had the same right to do immediately what he wanted to do right after the game ended. And if that included a private and quiet prayer on the 50-yard line, then he had the right to do that. So... I think you just said it, but the holding by the Supreme Court based upon that view of the facts was? That the that the Establishment Clause, well, I don't know if that's going too far up front. Basically, he had a First Amendment right to express his religious um, expression and just a First Amendment free speech right to do this personal and private prayer after his coaching duties were over, even in a public educational space. So I, I have some questions for Kendra in terms of the dynamic between free exercise versus free speech. But from an employment perspective, Michelle, based upon the court's description of the facts, did they view how did Garcetti versus Sabalo and the job duties concept uh, come into play in the court's analysis here? Well, and Kendra might disagree with this, and I'm interested if you do too. In my reading of it is they, they really just kind of gave that short shrift because they weren't focusing on that he was a public employee engaging in something in the course of his employment. They really focused on the fact that his coaching duties had over and were ended and he was free to do what he wanted to do. So I, I think they gave they didn't do the full detailed analysis that we would normally see in an employee free speech case like in Johnson v. Poway where they go through sort of the litmus test on what you look at to see if speech is protected. Kendra, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that they, once they decided that prayer was a matter of public concern and that he was he didn't have specific duties during that time, it almost became a foregone conclusion that we weren't in that public employee speech realm. They did do a cursory review of those, you know, Garcetti factors that we look at um, 
it, they did say that it was the, the prayer was not ordinarily within the scope of his coaching duties, that he wasn't speaking pursuant to a policy. He wasn't conveying a government message. All things that we know, you know, we don't we don't expect prayer to be one of those things. Right. But the analysis here was very different than we typically see in um, any type of employee speech context when you're applying Garcetti. So, Kendra, it seems my recollection is that part of the opinion was if we go to the free exercise jurisprudence and there's there's a rule where if a rule that's being applied to an employee is neutral and generally applicable, free exercise rights can be restrained by application. But the court here says, well, the rule wasn't being applied generally because the school was, as you said, Michelle, allowing employees to participate in non-religious speech during a period that generally speaking under what was perceived as their job duties was a time when they were supposed to be supervising students. But for Kennedy, they were they were prohibiting his expression compared to the others. So it wasn't a neutral application. And I feel like that maybe is the is the the branch that takes them that checks a Garcetti box in a way. That yeah, there was generally speaking an expectation for job duties that you would be supervising students. But clearly the district wasn't requiring that. And so we've moved out of the job duty box and into a place where we're analyzing issues from a free exercise perspective more 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 directly. Maybe not. So this case is interesting for that reason. There are they analyze all three clauses of the First Amendment in one case out of one act. And I think that that's one of the things that makes this case very unique. So we have we we can't talk about it without talking about it in chunks. And so we have the free exercise clause, and that is the um, neutral policy that is generally applicable. So they found in favor of Kennedy in that he was protected by the First Amendment under the free exercise clause because it was not a neutral and generally applicable policy because of what you mentioned. And there's so many facts in this case that I'll continue to throw in little nuggets, but. One of the things that they had attempted to say in his administrative leave and termination was that he was supposed to be supervising students during that time and that that was a re- that was a valid reason for terminating him because he wasn't supervising students because he was on the field praying. Um, but the court found that 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 wasn't true. Right. They they were not requiring any other, as Michelle mentioned, all these other coaches were not required to supervise students during that time. They could go make a dinner reservation or speak to a friend or speak to the community. They weren't actively supervising students. And so because they were applying it differently to him and saying, you can't engage in your own personal activities during this time because they're religious, it was non-neutral and not generally applicable. So at that point, if they are going to restrict his activity, then it has to past strict scrutiny. And so that's a really tough standard for them to meet. And the court didn't even engage in this analysis. They just said, your justification doesn't even meet the lowest threshold. So he had First Amendment protection. So he already prevails on the free exercise clause. What they tried to argue, skipping over free speech for a minute, because that's a much deeper conversation that Michelle's going to address on the labor and employment side. But Skipping over that, the district tried to argue that we had to restrict his free exercise because we were avoiding an establishment clause violation. Well, under Lemon, as attorneys, we would probably go down that analysis to say 
yes, you have to avoid establishments. So this is a this is a good reason to restrict it. It'll pass strict scrutiny. This court said no. These these clauses of the First Amendment, they don't trump each other. They exist together. They're intended to exist together. So trying to avoid an establishment clause is not a significant or substantial justification to violate his rights. I thought the interesting part there, too, is that the court specifically said that the district had created this artificial conflict between or among the clauses that doesn't exist. And that, to me, was fascinating because I think anyone who's studied the First Amendment has generally accepted and recognized that there is a, a potential conflict over the years and under the existing case law where you do have to balance these sort of conflicting interests. But it was really interesting that the majority of the court didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. They thought you could read them in harmony without conflict. I agree. That really stuck out to me in my first reading of the of the decision that I think we all have kind of thought that public entities have a duty to avoid establishment clause violations and having your employees praying is probably one of the biggest red flags that we would say, okay, we have a conflict here. How do we support their rights while also avoiding an establishment clause violation? And so for the court to say these exist together, it really kind of leaves us with a lot of questions. So Lemon, the standard that would have been applied for the last 40 years on which most of those establishment cases are based, court gets rid of it, right? Overturns that case, it is no longer binding authority, which, Michelle, I know you have some thoughts as where does that take us with some of the employee speech establishment clause issues going forward? But is it, when we're talking about this, at least in this case, free exercise, in essence, trumping establishment, is it important for us to, to understand that in the context of the facts that this decision was based, as opposed to, for example, if an employee was, a, a teacher was praying in the classroom during instructional time, do you think then that takes us to a place where the Establishment Clause reasserts itself? Or are we looking at Garcetti versus Sabalos and the idea that, no, that's clearly speech within the confines of a teacher's job duties and therefore not protected and subject to our regulation? I think two things are, are at play if it's speech within a classroom. I think we've got that under the the employee free speech um, structure that we're under, that yes, that's speech within the course and scope of employment. And so that can be limited in a classroom setting. And then I think on the establishment clause side, we've got a long, I think, uh, history of cases that talk about potential coercion of students and students as a captive audience. And those things are still in place after this Kennedy decision. So I think the applicability of, of the Kennedy decision and those types of things in the classroom are still going to be extremely, extremely limited slash not acceptable under the law as it, as it currently stands. Because we've got students that are compelled to attend school and required to be in a, in a classroom, and there's a lot of cases that talk about how students are Um, more young impressionable minds. exactly young impressionable minds but actually that leads me to something really really interesting that i pulled out of the case that gorsuch said what he said is let me find it here yeah when talking about the idea of students sort of being um, um, exposed to this he said that students um, by being exposed to prayers such as the one that kennedy gave at halftime Uh, We're learning how to tolerate or said that learning how to tolerate public prayer is a part of learning how to live in a pluralistic society. 
So in other words, they got to yeah. learn to deal with it. Yeah. I just yeah. thought that was really interesting. Yeah. But I, I mean, digress from what you just asked. No, me. but I mean that's what's interesting is if you go back in time to a lot of the big free speech, expanding the rights type cases, on this idea of school being a you know the the place where an experiment for democracy is occurring. In fact, a lot of this context and argument came up in the, the college admission cases last week, um, the oral argument occurred in this idea that in the educational setting, you're preparing students for participation in such a society. And this court clearly has signaled that that doesn't mean just race or ethnicity, but obviously a, a, a perspective that is much more welcoming or acceptable and tolerant of religion being part of that pluralistic right. society we're in. Well, Michelle, do you also think that because of that phrasing that they're talking about public prayer? Gorsuch is clearly indicating that this was viewed by the court to be in public, not to be within the school setting. And so I think that's another way that the facts are really distinguishable from instances where we might have a teacher that feels that this case authorizes them to pray in the classroom. Because even Gorsuch is saying this was teaching tolerance of public prayer. That's not the same as saying that students have to be subjected to prayer by sitting in their classrooms where they are in that impressionable state and subject to coercion. I agree. I think there's multiple times throughout the opinion where they really do focus on the idea that he was doing this in public and not in a classroom setting or anywhere like that. So I think that's a big, I think that's important to point out because as our clients grapple with this issue, or potentially have employees or board members or parents or whoever, students that think that this opens the door for certain things. I'm not sure it opens the door as wide as people think because it was, as as Sloan and you pointed out, really limited on the facts of what he was doing at these three specific football games and the fact that it was public, but it was private and it was quiet. I think those are three really important things that we'll have to look at. The hard part's going to be though, the court specifically overruled the Lemon case, Lemon v. Kurtzman, that we've all relied on, and it didn't replace it with any tests that we can use. What's the phrase that it said? Yeah, so instead of giving us a new test, which we typically expect of the court when they overrule something, they replace it with something new. Here, they didn't give us a new standard. They essentially instructed us to analyze what the, quote, founding fathers understood to be the intent of the Establishment Clause. We're far removed from the founding fathers at this point. And so looking back on on old teachings and old writings onto what they may have intended, and they instruct us to, quote, reference historical practices and understandings. And so they left us with, with a lot of questions and no answers. Because the idea that you would be trying to, you know, work through a potential establishment clause issue, and you're supposed to think about historical practices and understandings to decide what's acceptable or not, I just... That doesn't seem workable for any of our public schools. I just, it's extremely difficult. I mean, this court has, in a number of areas, gone to that history and tradition right right, type concept. I would say, and I'm highlighting myself as a full-on Supreme Court geek at this point, but in listening to oral argument yesterday on a case that has nothing to do with schools. um, Did they mention that again? Well, they talked, that standard is being used, and, and what Chief Justice Roberts pointed out was, he said something, and I, and I wrote it down. It's not here in front of me, but it was something like, history and tradition is not static. It moves on, doesn't it? I mean, hitting at the point that the, the question they were looking at could not necessarily be, you couldn't look at what was happening pre-Constitution or at the time of the Constitution's ratification 
to kind of fully grasp what the applicable history and tradition was. So I think that that term um, perhaps has a little bit more flexible meaning than some of its application over time, whether it's in the Fourth Amendment or the cruel and unusual punishment type context. But it's one that's being used. Um, It certainly invites some interesting arguments and historical research if the case calls for it. So coercion test, we think that's still viable. Focusing on students. Students. Captive audience, still viable. Also focusing on students. Garcetti and the idea that job duties, um, expression within the context of job duties, is not protected. So yeah, the Pickering-Garcetti type test that we use with employee speech in general still in place. If you're going to restrain free exercise rights, you better, as a first step, be darn sure that it is generally applied and neutrally applied in terms of the rules you're imposing. Yeah, to the extent districts are responding to any type of religious activity that they feel is inappropriate in the context that it is being done. In this instance, it was the the struggle, right, was that it was in the view of students. That was the district's real struggle, in view of the students in the community. They had options um, of implementing a neutral and generally applicable policy um, that would have, in effect, had him no longer praying on the 50-yard line. Um, One example that comes to mind uh, for me is nobody is allowed on the field after a game unless they're performing job duties related to the football game. that would have brought him off the field for a completely neutral, non-religious purpose. It would have been applied to everybody equally. Right. Or all coaching staff must immediately take students to the locker room after the game. That would have also done the same thing, right? That's right. And because it's neutral and generally applicable, the First Amendment rights don't attach there. And so uh, they would, the, the employee would have to prove up somehow that it was retaliatory or something like that. But if our goal is truly to just get everybody off the field, and make sure that we're not doing anything on the field, that's probably gonna that's probably gonna hold up. And the private nature of it. I continue to wonder as the dissent did um, in this opinion, if in these three games, what had happened prior continued to happen. And that is that district students come out to join the coach. So perhaps he is initiating his prayer alone, privately, quietly on the 50 yard line what do we do if students voluntarily come out and join and gather around him? And now we have a very public demonstrative prayer circle occurring. He didn't encourage it, but it is occurring. Are we now in establishment clause land on that? Um, I don't think that this case answers that question. And I think that their intentional reduction of what facts we're going to look at signals to us that they intentionally didn't consider these other activities that occurred before. So we really don't know how this case would have come out if students had voluntarily joined him and it became a spectacle. We're not being recorded, but I have a grin that wants to come across. We're not face. being recorded? Well, no, on a video. We're not on a video. Oh. Recorded. <laughs> it's like all <laughs> no, this for nothing. No, but I, what I'm smiling about is because this is, the end result is going to be that this, this opinion, because of the known larger factual context juxtaposed with the unique specific Mm -hmm. facts the court relied upon invites a number of gray areas and is going to invite legal challenges. But I'm thinking of your, your hypothetical Kendra, because if we take away the coach quite clearly, and this opinion doesn't impact or change student religious expression rights in my view at all. But, but prior to Kennedy, if you had a group of players alone without 
coach in the middle without being directed as a matter of school policy, going to the middle of the 50-yard line after the game and praying together. I think that would be protected student speech without. If it was just students, I think so too. So I think what Kendra just described is, now. okay, now we know that's okay. Mm -hmm. And now we know... The coach Kenny's by himself okay. is okay. When, when they join up, it's a, I mean, it, it's a full employment Supreme Court opinion for attorneys for a long time, for a long time now. I have a question for you, Sloan. There's, a, there's cases that for our school districts, you know, in California that um, have focused on the sea at the flagpole type activities. And the, and the law has always been students can absolutely do that and participate. Teachers and other staff cannot join them. Do we think this changes that? Uh, Michelle, that's a great, that's, this is a classic example of where Kennedy now uh, makes this a really intriguing legal issue and a complicated one for our school districts with their employees. There is case law that already exists, I think district court level, or some, at different places around the country, that historically would have said on those meet at the flag days where there is a, it's a national day where there's prayer by students voluntarily occurring before the school day with meeting at the flag to do so, that under Lemon and the other uh, other doctrine, including kind of this idea of coercive effect of of a teacher, that that a teacher's active participation in meet at the flag day and prayer is problematic and can be limited by a district within the course and scope of the employee's uh, job duties and because of historically Lemon recursement. Okay, so what's Kennedy do now that Lemon versus Kurtzman concept isn't there? We might consider what are the, the teacher's specific job duties. I think we can, if you were looking to say, well, maybe we should limit that expression, you would definitely go to the coercion type concepts in the case law. I think it gets tricky, though, because this is not a captive audience. Students are, are meeting at the flag on a voluntary basis as opposed to captively in the classroom. And so I think that's a great example of one that, that I think folks will look to Kennedy to say, oh, maybe the equation's changed. But on the other hand, because the court didn't touch coercion, and, and we're talking about, unlike in the Kennedy case, active direct engagement with a teacher and students, as opposed to the specific facts in Kennedy of a private prayer without student involvement, I think that's a closer question than Kennedy and, and one which you, you could fairly easily get to the conclusion that we can still regulate and limit that expression. But it's going to be, it's going to be a, a challenge and, and an intriguing challenge as we watch cases start to come in from around the country for the next decade under Kennedy. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, Kendra, thanks for joining me. This is great. And I think we went beyond the time that we would have expected, but it's no surprise. Uh, and it's no surprise that here we are several months after the opinion finally getting a chance to talk because, as you said, Michelle, we're still unpacking it and the implications of the case are going to go on for a while. Well, and the interesting thing is the three of us don't even have the same exact opinion on all the nuances of it. So yeah. it's no surprise that, you know, others won't as well and our districts will be grappling with it for quite some time. Thanks again for tuning in to the Elizondo Smith podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lazanasmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Kendra. Thanks, Thank Sloan. you, Sloan.
If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.